Greetings all, welcome to Hear Her Sports. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. I am still sheltering in place and also still talking to athletes about how they're managing the pandemic. This week on the episode is new novelist Faith Dismuke. This is the first fiction writer on Hear Her Sports, so I am super excited. Faith's young adult novel, Sprint Dreams, will be released in less than two weeks on June 1st. The main character is 18-year-old college sophomore Makeda Delane. She can't speak patois, she can't find love, and she can't convince her college coach to give her a scholarship. It is the story of track and field, relationships, and being at college. Faith and I talk a lot about the book, characters, and her inspiration, along with how COVID-19 messed with her marketing plans. I absolutely enjoyed reading Sprint Dreams, and as we discuss, it addresses some difficult issues athletes can face when they get to school. You can pre-order your copy on Amazon, and I recommend that you do. That link is on the show notes page at hearhersports.com. Let's meet Faith. Joining the podcast today is track and field athlete and new novelist Faith Dismuke. Faith ran for Villanova, an NCAA Division I school, and for USA Track and Field. She experienced the usual struggles athletes face throughout careers from youth sports up through the professional ranks. In 2015, Faith earned a master's degree from the University of Connecticut with a focus on media's influence on the representation and psychology of student athletes of color. She is about to launch her first novel, Sprint Dreams. It is a story of a collegiate athlete determined to be an All-American, while she is also figuring out some personal stuff as one does in college. Welcome, Faith. It's really great to have you on the podcast. Awesome. Good. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's get right into the book. Why did you want to write Sprint Dreams? So as you mentioned in my bio, I've had a very long career in track and field. And the problem with track and field, I have so many ways to praise it, but just to talk about the problems is that it is in many ways a solo sport uh, where a lot of the responsibility of how you succeed, whether you win or lose, is on you, which leads to a lot of isolation and a lot of pressure on athletes in that track and field sport. So a lot of the issues that I went through, the usual issues of perfectionism and also just balancing school and balancing social life, a lot of times I felt alone. I felt that I was the only one dealing with this because there were many times where I was practicing by myself because maybe classes were different from my teammates or there were times where I just had a lot of solo time with my coach or I had to practice on my own because of injury. So there were a lot of times where I was kind of secluded in these emotions. And it was, of course, very isolating, as I said before. So after talking to more athletes, once I was able to really learn more about the athlete experience from a research perspective, especially during my time in grad school at the University of Connecticut, I got to learn finally that a lot of what I experienced during my high school years and undergrad years is not uncommon. And I wanted to share that story in a way that was relatable outside of just research-focused journals, although those are incredibly helpful. I believe narrative is a great way for people to really connect with other people's struggles, even if they're not their own. Mm-hmm. Let's backtrack a little bit. Why don't you tell us about the story and about the main character? Yeah, of course. So the story starts with this college sophomore, uh, Makita Delane. She starts off in this school in a city area. She grows up in the city, Philadelphia, and she's determined to be All-American. She's determined just to prove that she can compete with the best of collegiate track and field. And 
she has these insecurities about herself that I wanted to establish in the very beginning of the book because those insecurities do lead to a series of um, decisions that aren't exactly the best decisions. Yeah, it was one of those things where you're like, oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, even as I write it, I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, why is she like, why would she do this? But yes, but it starts with a lot of the insecurities that she has in the beginning. So she's insecure that she's not as good as the rest of her athletes, which leads to a level of vulnerability that leads to a set of decisions that she makes later on. Those same insecurities then cross over to her, her personal relationships, mm -hmm. which leads to another set of bad decisions as well. The point of Makeda is really to show that sometimes there's an insecurity that it comes from. And if that insecurity doesn't get addressed, it's just, it can be a downward spiral from there. And that's part of the reason that I wrote Makeda. Also, it was very easy to create Makeda. One, she reflected a lot of my story, but she reflected a lot of other people's stories. So you had this athlete, Ashley Pratt, once on one of your episodes. And it was crazy listening to that episode because if you were to create a persona of what the reader for Brent Jeeves would be like, or kind of who Makeda mirrored and who her friends mirrored, it would be somebody like Ashley Pratt, somebody who has a younger sibling that she cares very much about, somebody who has these um, big goals and big ambitions, but also has to face mainstream standards like colorism and having to having to figure out how to navigate through the college experience through race. And just hearing Ashley's story and then reading stories by authors like Jason Reynolds, who wrote this nationally acclaimed series about track and field, seeing all those stories overlap just showed me just how much similarity these characters had. So bringing Makeda to life was actually very easy because I've seen Makeda so many times. That's really cool. Say again about the insecurities that Makeda started with and you know, sort of what resulted from those. Yeah, of course. So. One of the insecurities she has is that she is not on scholarship in her historically black universities, which led to her thinking that she had to really prove to not just her coach, but also to herself that she can compete with just her teammates, who a lot of them were on scholarship, and also just with the best of collegiate track and field, like I mentioned before. So that was one insecurity. And then another insecurity she has is just developing relationships as a whole. She gets into um, not the most positive relationships, to say the least, partially because she wanted that validation. Because she couldn't get that validation on track and field, she wanted that validation through personal relationships, which was another insecurity. Right. And then on top of that, just culture as a whole. As somebody who's Jamaican-American myself, Jamaica is a huge powerhouse in track and field. So to have two powerhouses kind of collide into this one character, and she does connect with both, but there's still a separation because she's not even first generation. She's, she's still trying to figure that part of her out. And she's also insecure about that. So she feels just not good enough in the relationship aspect, in the sport aspect, and even just on the very basis of her culture and her bloodline aspect. So those were the primary insecurities that she has that right. leads to the rest of the story. Right. I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. why, why did you want to discuss 
the problems that she had with relationships. I mean, you can decide how much you want to give away, but there's one in particular where I thought that, you know, that's certainly a topic that we're talking a lot about now in sports. Yes. In terms of just getting involved with her relationships, let's see, because I also don't want to give too much away as well. Because <laughs> um, I know exactly which relationship she's talking about. So she does get into... She just has uh, difficulties connecting with her coach, for the lack of better words. Mm -hmm. Um, That one, it was a result of, again, going back to her insecurities. And also, it was more of a warning for readers to be careful of letting people take advantage of those insecurities in many ways. That was a very difficult relationship because I have so much love for the coaches in my life. So to kind of flip that relationship into something negative, it was difficult. But those are also stories that I've heard about athletes and coaches having those negative relationships and how it affects the athlete. And especially in track and field, where that relationship is already intimate because it's so one-on-one. Your coach knows or should know your body, how it operates, because they see it one-on-one often. So there is that level of trust. And it's hard to find that fine line of where where a coach can be tough and where a coach can, in many ways, abuse that power. Right. And sometimes coaches don't even know when they're doing it. Sometimes they feel they had tough love in their coaching experience, so they're just going to pass it on. That was a very tough piece of the story to write. But it was a piece that was necessary because sometimes, especially for collegiate athletes where you've committed to a school and then all of a sudden you realize you don't like the school or you don't like the athletes or you don't like the team, you don't like the coaches, but you feel stuck. How do you navigate through that? Who can you go to to talk about that? And how do you handle that? So it was a very difficult conversation to bring forward, but it was a conversation that needed to be had. Yeah, you know, I thought that relationship was really interesting because it was hard to read. I mean, I can imagine it was hard to write. But I also thought it was really well written in that, you know, some of those warning signs that when you're in it, you don't necessarily see. And you could see that Makeda didn't often see what was happening. But as a reader, you saw what was happening. So I thought that that was an interesting way to get that message across. Yeah. And if it wasn't through at least Makeda's experience, for those who may not know the signs, because Maybe as they're reading the book, they might be in a relationship like that. Even if it's not with their coach, it might be with a significant other. It might even be with just a relative or just a very toxic friend. Regardless, that's one of the reasons I loved writing the character Alicia. I love her. I loved loved writing her because she was often that voice of reason. And she was also able to help bring certain issues that Makeda was having to light as that outside voice, as sort of she was seeing what us readers would recognize as, oh, this is not good. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. I also really like that you brought up the relationship with coaches, because I think if you're not in athletics, if you're not in sports, you don't really realize how important that person is and how much influence that person can have. Yes, absolutely. Um, And another reason I wanted to bring that up is because even through the test reading, um, a very interesting comment with one of my test readers was, oh, I see why you added that relationship fantasy. And I'm thinking, oh, this is 
there's nothing fantasy about this. But I think it has been romanticized. And I guess I'm giving more and more ways time. This story has been sort of romanticized. And because of that, it can make people more susceptible to kind of falling into relationships that really could lead down a negative path. Right. So, like I said, it was more, it was definitely a warning sign. It was definitely a be aware. It was definitely to show the signs of what are some things that you should look out for and just being aware of, you know, what are some red flags and how can you stop it from getting out of hand? Right. Another area that I thought was really interesting that you brought up was athletes who come into a school and suddenly find themselves in classes that they're not interested in. Poor Makeda had had a tough time for the first year. Yeah. So actually, there has been issues of that in collegiate sports that has been bad enough that NCA did make a rule in which academic offices, whatever that is for a particular school, cannot force an athlete into a major just because it fits practice. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that actually is an NCA rule. Well, I figured um, it was based on reality. Yeah. So that part was to want to bring to light some of the stereotypes that athletes have to face, that dumb jock right. stereotype. It does exist. It may not be as blatant as it used to be, but it definitely does exist. I've had stories that athletes in my life and athletes that I have been friends with have um, shared about how there are professors who don't who don't like them as soon as they see the athlete jersey, as soon as they see the athlete uniform, the competition gear, then they're just written off as that dumb jock. And I wanted to bring that to light as well. Right. And all the issues that I bring to light in the book, very rarely I dwell on any one particular issue because unfortunately, sometimes there's so many issues that go. If you dwell on it in real life, it's one that's not realistic and two, you would drive yourself crazy. So it's just all these instances that just hit her and she just has to deal with it at that instance if it's something that she can deal with. Is this your story? No. Kind of going back to how I created Makeda was just, there's so much overlap with so many athletes who have so many different experiences. So I was lucky. I loved the major that I was in, but i Again, after doing the research about NCA rules, after hearing the stories both in media and also just through personal relationships with other athletes who have shared their stories, you just learn to see so many of the overlap. And I'm a very observant person. So being able to compile that into one story in which so many athletes can relate to was just something that is a skill of mine. What was your experience in sports growing up? So I was blessed when I went to um, an all-girls school, actually very similar to Ashley Pratt's story in your last episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's obvious overlap. <laughs> but yeah, so I was blessed to have gone to an all-girls school. So I got to see a lot of female individuals who have been role models for me. And that has really shaped just how I navigated through college. And in college, I had amazing teammates many that I'm still connected with today, who have just been very supportive, who have just been very encouraging, um, even after my career professionally as an athlete and even with this novel. It was just a blessing to have like such a strong support system. And then again, 
I had coaches who really helped me develop not only as an athlete, but helped me develop just as a person, how to handle just some of the stress of balancing being a competitive athlete and balancing education. Yeah, so I have just been blessed to really have a strong support system throughout my athletic and professional career. Do you have any coaches that stand out? Oh, wow. So I will say in the beginning, there is a coach, Coach Michael, who is her childhood coach, her youth coach. And I will say he was directly based off of my childhood coach. He first introduced me to elite track and field, to highly competitive track and field through summer sports. Mm -hmm. And just the dedication he had to his athletes, regardless of age, regardless of talent, and how he really took me in as a father figure. And I still look at him as a father figure. I'm very grateful for what he's done in my life and how he has supported me throughout my career and how he has just been just a very caring person. So it's hard to say what coach, but if I could just list one, I mean, I would say a lot of my success did start with him really just opening my eyes to that high level of competitive track and field. It was very interesting writing the coach who takes up most of the page space, for lack of better words, in this book, because most of my coaches actually were male. So adding that female coach perspective um, was both also a little nerve-wracking and just interesting to kind of see how that would influence everything that happens in the story. Right. What's your aim for the book? The goal of the book is honestly to just have, primarily to start with that track and field community and just have a story out there for track and field athletes, particularly those of color. Because as I was writing the book and as I was doing the research to know the market for it and to know who were my competitors and what similar stories, the only similar book there is to mine is the story Patina by bestseller author Jason Reynolds. And that's the middle grade novel that I believe I mentioned before. But aside from that, One, college sports is really not mentioned in this sort of younger adult, new adult industry. It's just not brought up. And a few times it is, it's usually brought up as that sort of romance type Mm storyline. So really it's just creating a space for track and field because track and field is one of those sports where I truly believe in, obviously I might be biased. It doesn't (laughs) fully get the recognition that I believe it could have, partially because not many people know much about the sport. Every time I mention that I do track and field, that I did it in college, I did it pro, it was always the first question is, oh, so you're going to the Olympics. What people don't know is that there are so many top, highly competitive meets throughout the year. So there's IAAF, Diamond League, which happens in Europe. That happens every year. USA Nationals every year. There are meets in the Caribbean every year. World championships is every two years. So there are lots of opportunities for people to learn about track and field. But because it's not talked about in other platforms outside of just sports, unlike football and basketball, where we have movies, we have books, we have we really get to know these athletes off the court and off the field. I felt it was to bring track and field off the track and into another platform so people could really get to know a bit more about the athletes, a bit more about how athletes get to this elite level. Cool. 
you studied representation in grad school. Was that yes. an important reason for writing the book? Yes. So one study in particular that I remember is, it wasn't particularly just focused on athletes. It was primarily um, women of color and going through those stereotypes that often women of color face. So stereotypes that dark-skinned Black women face versus the stereotypes that light-skinned Black women face and how that influences not just how they interact with people on a personal level, but also even through the medical field. So one of the issues in the study that I looked into was in terms of getting mental health because of that stereotype of the angry Black woman sometimes getting that mental health service and getting that advice that they really needed wasn't quite there because sometimes their issues that Black women may bring up just get tossed aside as you're just overreacting, chalk it up to the angry Black woman stereotype. Mm -hmm. In fact, that is something I even slightly bring up in the book as well, or I slightly insinuate in the novel as well. That research definitely influenced the book because I wanted to bring up that this is not just something that happens just between friends or even between just peers or even colleagues just in the workspace, but it can even influence somebody in their professional career working with people who are supposed to be there to help them. But because of stereotypes that sometimes can be inherent or microaggressions, sometimes um, Black women don't get that help. And being an athlete, being a Black woman identity doesn't go away. Right. It just gets transferred over to your athletic career sometimes. Right. Just added to. Yeah. Yeah. I want to find out what's good about track. Like, what did you gain from track? <laughs> <laughs> it was not always clear for the book. <laughs> uh, so the beauty about track and field partially is the, the relationships you develop. So she does develop a relationship with some of her teammates so there's Giselle, who becomes a support system for her kind of when she has the time. <laughs> and then there's also um, her relationship with Naomi, because relationships do change throughout one's athletic career. So there are plenty of times, just like with people in different groups, just like maybe even the workforce, um, classmates, there may be somebody that you don't initially get along with, but because there's this mutual understanding about needing each other in the sport, having to support each other in the sport, eventually you do, sometimes a relationship, a positive relationship does come from that. In the end, she does realize that her role is often to help others. So the beauty that I loved about my career as an athlete is that ability to inspire others either directly or indirectly. So there were a couple of times, even in my own career, where I felt down and I felt that maybe my track career isn't going the way I want it to go. And just randomly, somebody will come up and congratulate me or encourage me. And it sometimes it's people that you haven't talked to in a while. So it's great to know that there are people out there who are rooting for you, even if it is silently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another part of the book that I thought was really interesting was how much partying there was. And, you know, it's definitely not a bunch of athletes sort of taking themselves out of the social life for their sport. Was that your experience in school? And why did you want to talk about the social aspect and partying and things like that? Uh, so actually, it's not uncommon after a big meet, whether it is on the collegiate or professional level after a big 
that athletes from different schools will come together to basically have a party to celebrate their accomplishments. And I wanted to bring that part up because it's very hard to kind of find that balance of having fun, connecting, and obviously going too far. And there are plenty of times Makita has gone too far. (laughs) So it's not one of those stories where partying is necessarily praise, but it is just part of the college experience and seeing how it affects track and field and how sometimes the repercussions for going overboard for maybe a non-athlete might significantly different Mm -hmm. for what happens to your career and what happens to your track and field experience and your just athletic experience as a whole. Right. What authors do you read? Oh, so many. So I did get into, of course, a contemporary young adult novel binge as part of research for making sure that the novel does have the sound that I really want it to have. So there has been a surge in hashtag own voice literature where authors from diverse backgrounds really share their experiences through characters who typically do come from diverse backgrounds. So there's Dominican American author Elizabeth Acevedo. She actually just released her novel on May 5th, Clap When You Land, about two Dominican girls who find out that they're sisters. There's author Nick Stone, who wrote the bestseller Dear Martin, and she tackles on some like some very serious conversations, particularly um, Dear Martin focused on police shootings. Let's see, one of the biggest inspirations I had for the book was Zora Neale Hurston, the Harlem Renaissance author. And of course, I give my tribute to her in the book as well, because one of my favorite books from her is Their Eyes Were Watching God. And what I loved about that book was it sort of was a similar progression to my story where you watch this character grow and you watch her grow through relationships, but it's not necessarily a romance novel. Relationships are just part of how you see this character grow because of how she views relationships differently as she grows as a person, as she learns more about herself. So I love uh, Zora Neale Hurston for that story. In terms of fantasy, I've always been a Harry Potter fan. That's sort of where my love of reading really stemmed, reading the first book, I think in like first or second grade, and just kind of going down the rabbit hole from there. Right, right. Another fantasy novel that just came out, Tomi Adeyemi, Children of Blood and Bone series, which really took fantasy and then incorporated Western African culture into it. And that was the first time I got to, yeah, it was the first time I really got to see those two things mix and it's done so beautifully. Mm -hmm. I can definitely go to the list. Oh, and of course, The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. That is my go-to book for really when I just feel down and I just don't know what my next move should be, whether it's just trying to make a significant decision or anything like that. That's always my go-to book because that story is so short, but it really talks about how people in this world are connected in some way. Wow, what a great list. Thank you. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully you add some of them to your library and maybe you have a chance to talk later. I'd love, I'd love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your own training and the pandemic and stuff. What's life for you like right now? Oh, wow. It definitely ruined my marketing strategy for the book without question. (laughs) One of the reasons 
it was strange. One of the reasons that I wanted this book released actually was because the Olympics was coming out. Of course. So, <laughs> track and field was going to finally get their spotlight as they do every four years. Right. So, of course, you know, I wanted to add my book into that conversation. So when the news about it being postponed happened, I was at first very shocked. And I believe that actually the NCA decision came first. Everything kind of came back to back at that point. But when NCA made their decision to cut spring championships, that ruined all my plans to actually go to track meets because I had retired in 2019, October of 2019 from track and field to focus on the novel. So this was going to be, I got to finally be a spectator and get to finally just watch the sport to enjoy it. Oh, bummer. Well, of course, I enjoyed competing <laughs> with it. But really, to just to enjoy it without all the nerves of right. getting into the starting blocks or anything like that. So I was incredibly excited. So all that got thrown out the window. <laughs> all of that. But this is another thing I can attribute to track and field, this constant need to learn and this constant need for growth. Because with track and field, you're constantly learning something new, whether it's about your physical body, whether it's about your limitations mentally, where you need breaks and and you don't. I pretty much took what I learned from track and field into this writing career. And I've really just dedicated this time that we now have, or that I now have, to really focus on just learning new skills for myself as I look into the next chapter of my life as a former athlete. It's still also ruined. I was working with a local high school and helping those athletes develop and um, kind of helping them along the way so they can really grow in the sport. And of course, even on the high school level, sports got canceled or postponed. So not being able to really help those athletes navigate to how to transition from high school sports to college sports, that was disappointing as well. But really dedicating time to this novel has really helped me to still remind me that there are ways to help athletes, even if it's not directly through competing. Right. I noticed on social media that you're definitely still training. What are you doing? Oh, so I still, oof, I do definitely a mixture of things. So on days where it's raining, because where I live, it, it rains often. So I'll do, of course, like YouTube videos and hit workouts. But I still do some track and field workouts. Because they're just such a great way to really build power, even without weights, because sprint training really helps with power. Doing plyos really helps with power. And then also running is just a great way for endurance as well. So whenever I take a long break from working out, for whatever reason that may be, I always start with cardio first. So I always just do a couple weeks of just long runs. Well, for me, long runs would be like 15, 20 minutes. I'm still a sprinter at heart. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but that's, that's the first couple of weeks because without having that cardio, doing things like weight training, doing things like plyo, really getting those gains that is now big talk in fitness conversations is much harder because you can't make it through a lot of those intense but short workouts. So I always start with cardio as a foundation for me. And then from there, I start working on different ways of how to just continue with power. I'm excited, though, for when the gyms open up again. I am excited. I still might wait a little bit just to see how everything works out as soon as it opens. But I'm very excited to go back into the weight room, though. Yeah, yeah. You called yourself a former athlete. What is it like being a former athlete? It's... 
it's interesting. I see it often as just another transition because at one point I was a high school athlete and then the conversation would have been, what's it feel like now no longer being in high school and transitioning to college? Then I was a college athlete and what's it like no longer being a college athlete and transitioning to pro? So I'm very used to transitioning into a, a very new environment in some way, shape or form. So it's not new territory and getting used to just a new experience, a new lifestyle in that sense, but definitely not competing at that high level. There are definitely times where I still have people and friends who are still very into the track and field world, either as coaches or even as pro athletes themselves. Sometimes I do miss it when they post race videos and you do get that sort of longing on occasion, but it's also nice to be able to look at my whole career in hindsight and be able to see the mistakes I made, but also to really finally appreciate a lot of the accomplishments that I made as well. So really getting that, finally getting that full retrospective perspective is really nice. That's good that you're able to do that. I think, like you said, athletes are always trying to improve, which can make us look at what we consider errors or, or yes. failings more than we look at our successes. Yes. And again, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is where there are times where she can be hard on herself. And especially in track and field, you're always looking at the next meet. As soon as, as, soon as you cross the line, and whether you talk at the time or not, you're always looking at the next race. You're always looking at the relay that's at the end of the meet. You're always looking at, at the next big championships. So it's nice to finally pause and to look back and to say, wow, I really came a long way. And I definitely want more athletes, whether they're still competing or not, to find that time to look back and remind themselves that you may not be exactly where you are right at this moment, but you've come so far and that is something to celebrate. Right. Definitely. Well, for the last couple of interviews, I've been asking guests if they have any advice for kids or thoughts for kids, do you? Don't be afraid to fail. Because from all those failures comes growth, comes learning. And eventually you learn all those failures were never failures, they were lessons. Nice. Well, before we wrap up, I don't know if I said this, but Sprint Dreams is definitely a page turner. It was a really exciting read. So congratulations. I think it was a, I don't know, it seems like a bold move to write a novel. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, hopefully I get other people who share that same sentiment. Of course, in the writing world, everybody has all different ways to interpret the story and all different opinions of how they may connect with it or even may not. But just getting that opportunity to get that story out there is a blessing. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I think that, as you mentioned, you know, there's not enough stories like this. So I really appreciate that you wrote it. Thank you so much for just reading the novel, getting the time to allow me to share my story. And that's it for this week's show. It is terrific you keep listening to these stories of and by female athletes. Thank you. Find more and sign up for our newsletter at hearhersports.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at hearhersports. Our design is by Agnes Studio and music by the band Goldmines. Keep healthy. Until next time. Bye-bye.
Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.